Skyborn, Episode 1, Above Grey Clouds, by K.G. Lockrams. My father was a commissioned naval officer turned war games advisor and held a top-secret clearance. My mother, a nurse. I was the third child born into their joyless marriage. I can't say whether or not they loved one another, but they didn't seem to like each other very much. Anecdotally, I know my father once shoved my mother down a flight of steps while she was pregnant with her first child, my older brother. I assume in an attempt to terminate either her or the fetus, or both. It was a disturbing revelation to hear as a child, blithely delivered by my mother out of the blue one day. Many years later, she denied ever having told me that. Not that it happened, just that she'd ever told me that it happened. It was an oddly specific denial. Staircases are something of a theme in my life, and have always been fraught with danger. As one descended our basement stairs, there was a beautiful oil painting of a sailboat on the water. I was terrified of that basement, and whenever my siblings and I would descend, knowing my fear, they'd always make me go first. And when they grew impatient with my progress, one of them would shove me so hard I'd fall down the stairs to the lower landing. This happened more times than I can remember. I can still recall that painting, 50 years later. There was a time when I was four and grappled for control of a gas station giveaway collectible glass with my brother. We'd gotten the glass for a fill-up along the multi-state car trip to my maternal grandparents' home. My brother and I were fighting over it in the kitchen doorway. The layout went kitchen, dining room, living room, and a staircase up to the next level. I had my back to the dining room and was perfectly aligned to the stairs. My brother, five years my senior, waited for me to pull in the glass with all my strength smiled at me, and let go. I'll never forget that look on his face. I stumbled backward through the dining room into the living room, unable to stop my momentum until I hit the bottom step, fell backward onto the stairs, and smashed the glass to my face. It shattered and cut my eyebrows so deeply I needed medical attention. My parents told me it was my fault for fighting over it, and told my brother, nothing. One morning around the same age, but back home, My sister, three years my senior, and I were having breakfast at the kitchen table. She wouldn't share the toy or promo that had come in the box of cereal. She had no interest in such things, but we had learned very early on, as prisoners in our parents' war, that withholding from someone that which they wanted was the root of all power. The square table was located at the top of the basement staircase. The back of her chair faced it. I was sitting adjacent to her and went to kick her under the table for teasing me. In anticipation, she jerked her chair back from the table. The back feet caught the lip of the metal trim which anchored the linoleum floor at the top step, and she and the chair tilted sharply backward. Down the stairs she went, ass over shoulders, breaking her arm in the process. I was told for years that I was responsible. You broke your sister's arm! I was beaten for it, told by my parents for the entire length of the time she was in her cast how disappointing I was to them. How bad I was that I had broken my sister's arm. I truly loved my sister, and to be convinced into believing I was to blame for hurting her was crushing. There was no door or gate at the top of that staircase. As an adult, the question I ask now, looking back, is this. What reasonable parent puts a table where their three children under ten are to eat with no barrier between them and an open staircase? But then reasonableness was not the status quo in my family. My parents were incapable of holding a mirror up to themselves to examine their role in anything that transpired in the home. Years later, when both my brother and sister were in high school, they had been fighting over something at the dinner table. 
My brother said something particularly cruel to her. She rose to attack him. He leapt from the table and headed for the stairs off the dining room, which led to the second floor. She gave chase, not realizing he'd grabbed a fork from the table on his way. She was gaining on him as he climbed the stairs. He turned and hurled the fork at her. She raised her arm in protection, and he had thrown it with such force it stuck in her arm. It's a wonder anyone came out of that house alive. Although that's a matter of interpretation and degrees, I suppose. The best way to describe my father would be to say he had an antisocial personality disorder, commonly referred to as sociopathy. He would ignore social norms and the laws he didn't agree with. He violated his security clearance regularly by having my sister, when she was older, help him with his work. He harassed his entire family. He was dishonest, deceitful, and would manipulate others for his personal gain. He had no impulse control. He was often aggressive and aggravated. He had no regard for the safety of others, and he showed no guilt or remorse while justifying his actions that negatively affected those around him. He could be very charming and charismatic up to a point, but as soon as he got what he wanted, or no longer needed you, he turned cold and aloof at best, and cruel at worst. But in the beginning, he was just... Dad. When my siblings and I were quite young, we used to love to meet our father in the driveway as he would come home from work. We'd wait in the front yard or venture to the corner of our street two doors down from our house and listen for the distinctive whistle-chip purr of the engine of his yellow VW Beetle. We'd run to the car and wait as he recorded his mileage in the book he kept in the pocket of the driver's side door. He'd put it back, and as he'd pull his hand out of the pocket, he'd be holding some treat or other for us. Boxes of good and plenty, good and fruity, packets of sen-sen, whatever he managed to scrounge up that day, and we loved it. Our house was often filled with music. Our father played string bass, the piano, the recorder, the melodica, and the accordion. Our mother played piano and trombone. We would often crowd around the piano and belt out songs and laugh as a family. And one day, it just stopped. There were no more treats at the car door. There was no more good nature or even goodwill. It was as if a different person came home one day. Instead of meeting him in the driveway, our new ritual would be to find a place to hide around the time he would usually get home. We'd listen for the front door to slam shut behind him with such force the stemware on the shelves in the dining room would rattle, startled by the vibration that shook the entire house. Then the bickering between my parents would start. Punishments would be doled out. The liquor would flow and the mood would darken into night. Corporal punishment was common in our home. We'd have our mouths washed out with soap for cursing, lying, or back-talking. Ours was the generation of, wait until your father gets home, though my mother was no stranger to the soap in the mouth or a good swat. We were often sent to bed early and or without supper. We got the belt or the palm regularly for any number of real or perceived slights or transgressions. Children should be seen and not heard. Honor thy father and thy mother. That was a favorite of my father's. Though not at all a religious man, he would regularly quote scripture as a shield to put the onus of proper behavior on us rather than on himself. After his change in personality, dinner time became a battlefield riddled with anxiety. We never knew what was going to set him off. There were always tears from some sort of torture conducted by my father, and none of us was spared. My siblings and I came to hate dinner. If I were to ask my mother what was for dinner, she'd either tell me or say, poison. 
As time went on, the answer was most often poison. I truly believed she was trying the idea on for size. My father, seated at the head of the table, would line up an arsenal of different things. These would range from the relatively light plastic Tupperware salt and pepper shakers to more substantial glass spice bottles, the likes of McCormick's garlic salt or lemon pepper. He would ask one of his children a question, and if he didn't like our answer, or if perhaps we made some observation or remark he didn't care for, he'd choose an item from his arsenal which he felt best suited our response, and throw it, as hard as he could, at the head of whoever had said it. There is nothing quite like having your father hit you in the head with a glass bottle of garlic salt. To this day, I can't stand the sight or smell of it. We had to eat everything on our plate, no matter what it was, or face punishment. This was juxtaposed with having our dinner taken away entirely if we did or said anything that wasn't allowed. The tension between our parents was a physical presence at the table and in our home in general. As children, my siblings and I had internalized their attention as somehow being our fault. It was our fault Dad was in a bad mood. It was our fault Dad was yelling at Mom because we had done something. It was our fault Mom was crying over some random thing. That false sense children have that everything is because of something they did or didn't do was, of course, reinforced by both of them. It suited their need to be the gods of our tiny worlds. We'd sit at the table in agony. Finishing quickly and asking to be excused would often trigger our mother to chastise us for wanting to get away from her. If we stayed too long, we'd be pulled deeper into our father's web of cruelty. We were damned if we did and damned if we didn't. Our mother didn't resort to physical abuse, so we all became speed eaters and took the path of least pain. My brother eventually adopted a position of leaning forward over his plate, placing his free armor on the top of it to both protect it from being taken away and to allow him to shovel his food into his mouth as quickly as possible. My sister would go on to develop an eating disorder, but that's a story for another time. My parents purchased my childhood home south of the Mason-Dixon line, roughly a year before my older sister was born. It was a three-bedroom, one-bath home with a living room, dining room, kitchen, and partially finished basement. My sister had her own bedroom, our parents another, and my brother and I the third. The basement was divided into a rumpus room at the base of the kitchen steps, a small home office that doubled as my father's dark room at the far end, and fully half of it was an unfinished area which served as both storage and our father's workroom. My clearest, earliest memory as a child is of our father putting my sister and I in the bathroom at night with sheets of paper and crayons. Not our oldest brother, just my sister and me. I was no older than four, my sister seven, and my brother nine. I can remember the quiet of the night, the damp smell of the bathroom. I can recall the tale of the roll of toilet paper swinging gently back and forth in the breeze from the heater vent. I remember the 70s stripy wallpaper, the Dixie cup dispenser mounted to the wall by the sink, and I remember drawing the same amorphous image over and over as I sat next to my sister. We sat side by side, in our pajamas and our silence, drawing. I never thought very much about anything beyond that moment. I didn't think about why we were in there in the middle of the night. I didn't think about where my brother was. I didn't think about where my mother was. It is a soundless memory encased like a snow globe, segregated from all other childhood memories. I would come to learn a term in therapy as an adult, disassociative amnesia which I interpret to mean that when confronted with a sufficiently upsetting set of circumstances, 
we disassociate from ourselves. The process feels as if you've cognitively checked out of your own skin, and while you're gone, your brain handles the storage of the memories in such a way as to short-circuit your access to them. My ability to disassociate was my most effective coping mechanism, and my brain's ability to prevent me access to my trauma memories probably saved my life. Another memory I have clear recall of from that age is a recurring nightmare. Penises, five feet tall, with arms and legs would appear in my bedroom closet, snatch me from my bed, and drag me down to the basement as I screamed and cried in terror. I never told anyone that dream at the time. It didn't feel safe to discuss. I became terrified of sleeping, or more accurately, of dreaming. I was developing the sleeping disorder that would last into my 40s. And in complete opposition to those memories, I have only one other early memory of my time with my father. It is summer, and we're in the above-ground pool in our backyard. It's just he and I. I'm on his shoulders, clinging to his forehead with one hand and clutching at his bare, sun-drenched shoulder with the other. He is bobbing us both up and down in the cool water. The simple smell of my father mixed with chlorine and sunlight. Aside from the days of meeting him in the driveway for treats, it is the only other happy memory I have of my time with my father for the entirety of his life. My mother once told me that from the moment I could roll over in my crib, I would rock myself to sleep, something I did well into middle school. No one discussed it. As an adult in therapy, I learned this was a means of self-comfort. We were able to roll over as early as four months old, and by four months old, I was compelled to engage in self-comforting behavior. My mother was also fond of telling the story of how long it took me to talk, how she had taken me to the pediatrician because I was well past my first birthday and had yet to start speaking. She would tell me how the doctor asked her what was going on in the home, and how she'd said that my brother and sister doted on me. She told me that the doctor had said I was her third child, had two older siblings taken care of me, and I didn't need to speak, so I didn't. She would tell this story as a pat on her back for having been such a good mother. All my needs were being met, and so I didn't need to express myself. The flat spot on the back of my skull tells a different story. More likely, I had developed a sense of learned helplessness. Why try to ask for something when you're left alone on your back in a crib to the point where your skull forms a flat spot? As I wrote this episode, I did days of research. I combed through old journals, dug through public records in multiple states looking up real estate transactions and death records. I even joined Ancestry.com to piece the memories I have that were tied to specific events in the world around me to the events of my life. I remembered a particular song that had just come out and looked up that date. I remembered seeing a particular movie at the drive-in and looked up when it was released. I remember watching lightning strike a nearby building under construction from the second floor windows of the new addition of our home, and so looked up when that building was built. One of the reasons so many people get away with sexual assault or incest is that people are not inclined to believe the victim's story. It was true 50 years ago, it's true today. Whomever the survivor tells can react in any number of ways depending on the situation. It can be painful for the person we tell. It may inadvertently cause them shame for not having known about it. They may move instantly to denial at the news, whether to protect themselves, the abuser, or simply because they don't want it to be true. And so, like it or not, the burden of proof falls to the survivor. I was pre-kindergarten when my abuse began at the hands of my father and eventually a friend of his. That dark room in his basement office, 
I don't recall ever seeing a single picture he developed. Never. Not one. There were none of his photos anywhere in the house. But the thought of that room makes me feel sick in the center of my body to this day. The body remembers. Anyway, I had no one to tell at the time of my abuse that I was being abused. In the beginning, I didn't even know what it was. It was just part of my world. I didn't even have the words for it. But I do now. I have lots of words. At some point during these years, my father stopped sexually abusing my brother and me. Unfortunately, after my father lost interest in abusing us, my brother took over abusing me. My brother and I were still sharing a room at the time. I was 6 to his 11, which put us in 1st and 6th grade, respectively. I was surprised by the timeline I verified. When I think of it, I always picture myself having been in 3rd grade, but that doesn't line up with my research, journals, prior writing on the topic. In every instance, I record the same revelation. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I recall being in 3rd grade, having done some research, and realized I was in 1st. This is the third time I've independently re-verified this information and felt as if it were some kind of a revelation. I called my therapist the other day to talk about it. I've been seeing her on and off for almost 20 years. She knows more about me than anyone else on this planet and is my most intimate relationship. I shared this revelation with her and she said, Kit, I know that you were six. I know you were in first grade. And this is the third time we've gone through this revelation. I was stunned. How is it I keep forgetting this? Your mind is trying to protect you. Every client I have who has survived what you have survived is some version of this. I hear it all the time. There's nothing wrong with you. Sometimes the act of remembering can be as traumatizing as the original memory, and your mind is just trying to clean it up for you. You are not broken. An interest in sexual gratification generally begins somewhere between five and nine. If you've already been inappropriately sexualized, that experience can lower that age. For me, the only affection, as twisted and inappropriate as it was, that I knew from my father was when he'd sexualized me. Aside from one moment in a pool bobbing up and down on his shoulders. Everything else was anger or disappointment. To have what little affection I had from him taken away from me, it was difficult. The abused often wonder, Again, as twisted and inappropriate as it is, what did I do to have this started? And just as upsetting, what did I do that they are no longer interested in me? Sexual abuse is so tragic and sad and just fucked up. The yearning for the affection, although completely twisted and inappropriate and sexualized, is similar to how a victim of domestic violence will sometimes defend their abuser. It was all I knew. It was conflated with intimacy and love, and my father's love, such as it was, was suddenly turned off. My mother's love, well, it wasn't sexualized, but nor was it consistent. My mother was a wounded narcissist who could go through the motions, but her heart was never really in it. Aside from that flat spot in my skull from being left in a crib too long, I never felt intentionally neglected but nor did I ever feel loved by my mother. If I'd climb into her lap, I'd be brushed away. The thing I feel best describes our dynamic was that if I were to hug my mother, she was always the first to let go. She was aloof and non-demonstrative. And so I sought comfort in the form of my friends. 
I lived in a sizable neighborhood, and most everyone who lived there had moved in to start a family. I became good friends with a kid my age, and our I'll show you mine if you show me yours turned into regular physical contact, which sometimes included daring one another to suck each other's dicks. We did this maybe three times, and always at his house because his parents never seemed to be home. It was just him and his older brother who was a bit older than my brother. One day, his brother walked in on us. That's all I remember. The walking in, nothing else. Eventually, my friend's brother told my brother about what we'd been doing. I'm still six, and my brother eleven. One evening, we were sent to take our shower together before dinner, and, referring to sucking a penis, he asked me, What's it like? I thought, and I said, It feels like licking your shoulder blade. You know your shoulder is all smooth? I guess it feels like that. And that was that. We finished showering, got dressed, and went on with our lives. One day, a few months later, my brother had a friend over and invited me to hang out with them. I was thrilled. What little brother doesn't want to hang out with his older brother's friends? I felt so cool to be in their clique. We were all in our bedroom. I was sitting on the edge of one of our beds, swinging my legs forward and back off the side of the mattress and watching as they played chess on a magnetic chessboard used for travel. I was practically beaming to be hanging out with the big kids. Suddenly, my brother starts telling his friend how I'd been sucking my friend's dick. I'm sure he'd do it for you too, he said. I was completely taken off guard, and before I knew it, Sam had taken his dick out and put it in my mouth. After that moment, I have no memory. All I remember of that afternoon is that my mother was in the kitchen making a lemon meringue pie with my sister. I left my body and our room. And then my brother became my abuser by pimping me out to various kids in the neighborhood. Although I remembered this going on for only a summer and going back and researching, this actually continued throughout my first and second grades. Same phenomenon. I've had this revelation at least three times now, and each time I forget, something gets me on the hunt, I find out the details, am completely surprised as if this is new information, and then eventually forget it again. I wonder if the same thing will happen again. And again, I share this with my therapist, and again she said that I've gone through this with you multiple times. So unsettling and bizarre to be a stranger in your own body. My brother had me providing oral sex to his friends who were 12 years old and older. The summer when I was 8 and my brother 13, the ice cream truck stopped in front of our house one day. The neighborhood kids swarmed it. While I was in line, a much older neighborhood kid who I barely knew rolled up on his bike, leaned in, and whispered in my ear, Your brother tells me you like to suck cock. I want you to do it to me and some of my buddies. I felt a sick twist in my gut. And for whatever wonderful reason, I said, no, and I ran into the house. If you were a survivor or a mental health care provider, you can appreciate how unlikely that was for someone who had gone through such a systemic amount of abuse. I had no sense of personal boundaries at that point in my life, and my sense of self had been completely eroded, first by my father and then by my brother. Saying no and leaving the scene changed the course of the rest of my life for the better. My action did not, however, reflect well on my brother. My refusal to comply eroded my brother's fledgling power base that he'd built using me as currency to gain favor or influence. In retaliation, he ambushed my parents as they were dressed and heading out for the evening. 
Kit sucked Jim's dick. I did not see that coming. All eyes turned to me. Is that true? No, no. Oh my God, I was in hell. I sucked his nipples, I sucked his nipples. That's not what I heard from his brother. He said he walked in on you two and you were sucking his dick, my brother added. I dove under the table in the corner of the living room, terrified, ashamed, humiliated, sobbing as the gods of my tiny world, my mother and father, stared at me in horror and damnation. My mother began yelling at me, accusing me, shaming me. As the sexual predator who started all of this, my father remained silent, which was oddly terrifying in its own right. I didn't understand why until many years later, but I always found my father's silence in that moment so surprising. My brother observed the scene with a satisfied smile on his face. I was eight years old and found myself the sole focus in that exchange. I had neither the language nor perspective at the time to navigate that moment. How could you do this to me? My mother demanded. I don't know what or even if I said anything in response. The only other thing I remember about that exchange was my parents decided to go out anyway and left the house for their evening as planned, leaving my brother, me, and my sister to fend for ourselves. I'm not the first child to be in that situation, and I know I will not be the last. My parents never spoke of it again. My mother didn't want to deal with pesky questions like, where would my eight-year-old son have learned to do this? Or, should I talk to Jim's parents and find out what is going on with their family? And eventually I came to the conclusion that my father was silent to avoid any light being shown in his direction. Looking back, I'm sure he was terrified of being found out but no one talked about such things in polite circles, which is exactly how that shit survives. It's the same story today. I never said anything about what my brother had done. My shame was too great, and the whole thing had been presented as though I was doing something wrong, and so I believed it. It was my fault. I was so ashamed. Soon after that night, I developed a series of nervous tics. I would curtly nod my head in a sharp downward motion. I would do this over and over all day long. Eventually, another tick joined in. I'd flick my arm straight out in front of me in the same curt fashion with a crisp snap at the end. One evening over dinner, my head tick was in full swing. Stop doing that, my father threatened. His tone made it worse. If I was told not to do it, it called out to me all the stronger. What is wrong with your son? He'd ask my mother. My father loved to take the credit for anyone's successes, but he never carried any blame. He knew damn well what was going on with me, and every expression of every tick must have been for him a silent accusation of his abuse. To talk about my tick would be to talk about that night, which could lead to a much larger discussion he did not want to have. And similarly with my mother, she had to have suspected something in those years. Three small children, and your husband gets out of your bed in the middle of the night, walks three feet across the hall into the bedroom adjacent to yours, puts your children in the only bathroom five feet from your bedroom door, and you're oblivious? So much denial and deflection. Tick. Tick. He hurled the pepper shaker at me. Tears welled in my eyes. Tick. Tick. One evening at dinner... My father didn't say a word about my tics. His lack of criticism was as painful as the criticism itself. 
I'd gotten so used to it, I craved the familiarity of it, which is sadly common with abuse. Our bodies become so accustomed to the stimulus and response that a dreadful comfort is formed from its familiarity. Another night, grace had been said and the food had been passed. I reached for my glass of milk, felt my arm tick trigger, and as I finished the cycle with a sharp snap of my arm, I knocked my glass over and poured milk all over the table. I froze, terrified. I couldn't breathe as it braced for a barrage of insults and condiments that never came. My fear was met with silence, the moment held for what seemed like an eternity. I took a jagged breath and began to cry. Don't cry over spilt milk, my mother said quietly. That simple, non-reactive comment made the whole thing so much worse. I had been yelled at so many times at the dinner table for knocking a glass over, dropping a utensil, spilling something on the tablecloth, not sitting up straight, leaning my elbows on the table. My mind could not reconcile this abrupt shift from constant terror at the smallest infraction of dinnertime expectations to this bizarre silence and support. Every fiber of my body distrusted it. It was foreign and frightening. The crying became sobbing, and I could not stop. It gripped me so completely I was out of control. The pressure had reached such a point that my tiny body needed a release and took full advantage of it. I was taken to my room and left to cry myself to exhaustion. To this day, talking about my tics or even writing about them makes them call to me. Right now, my whole being wants to rapidly nod my head. But now, I understand where that call comes from and I'm able to diffuse it by acknowledging the impulse and then letting it go unexpressed. At this point, I did my best to suppress any need for physical comfort. My parents certainly weren't interested in providing any after my brother's revelation. Going forward, my father's physical contact came solely in the form of physical abuse, usually his belt. I think he knew how easily that night's conversation could have circled around to him. He became more withdrawn and often absent from the family and engaged in solitary activities and drinking. I began sleeping under my bed as often as in it. My mother just carried on with the basic requirements of the day. My paternal grandfather died three months before my fourth birthday. I never knew him. I know from stories of my siblings that he and my paternal grandmother had visited us at least once. There is a cherished story among my siblings of how popular he was with the neighborhood kids because he spent an afternoon teaching them how to properly drink beer from a bottle. You know, with actual beer. So the kids would have been between seven and nine years old. I'm sure he was quite the hit. Not long after his passing, my father began plans to build a second story on our home. My father was many things, a wife-abusing, child-abusing, drunken, racist predator, but he could do anything he put his mind to. I designed and built the addition with his own two hands, the help of a couple of friends and the family, for what we could do at our various ages. His mother was losing her mental faculties and her vision. The addition was to make room to move her in with us and have access to her money. My older brother and parents moved upstairs to the new addition with central air, while my sister and I, the two youngest in the house, were left on the first floor with our now blind and fully demented grandmother. Our passive-aggressive, non-demonstrative mother was not pleased with this situation. She was too busy trying to get through her own hell with my father and manage her own three children. She had neither the time, energy, nor interest in being caregiver to her mother-in-law. 
When I first learned she was moving in, my parents pitched it as glad tidings. How would you like it if grandma came to live with us? Won't that be fun? I had hoped she would somehow trigger better behavior between my parents as they seemed able to pull off being a happy couple in front of company. And I had fond memories of her from past visits and fantasized about hugs, bedtime stories, being tucked in. But she was too far gone for any of that when she arrived, and the first time I crawled into bed with her one afternoon, she began to scream. Pig! There's a pig in my bed! Get this pig out of my bed! And that was that. I never went near her again. Although I was often left alone with her when I was seven. Left alone with a blind woman with dementia. She would just sit, either in a chair at the dining room table or in her bed, and stare at the void that was her world. It was truly unnerving to witness as a child. I had no understanding or context. She looked like my grandmother, but at the same time, she wasn't. My father now had access to her bank accounts, and he was not shy with it. He built a garage behind the house with a pit for working on cars. He bought a new car and told my mother, I got it because it matches your eyes but then he never let her drive it. A boat appeared one day. I remember the constant wasp nests in the shelter. I remember being the one tasked with cleaning the belly as I was the smallest. Being under the keel of a boat while four other people are washing was a wet and soapy experience. And I remember my brother once shoving me off a pier, getting stuck under it and almost drowning. Then my father brought a plane. It was a single-prop piper probably a J3 Cub. It had a fabric body, which I had never imagined could be. It completely amazed me the first time I touched it and felt it yield under my hand. Once the plane came, we didn't see much of him, which seemed fine with everyone. He had to get licensed, which required a great deal of flight time. I remember him sitting at the dining room table with his black pilot's case full of maps, rulers, a protractor, and mechanical pencils. He'd spend hours creating his flight plans. The case weighed more than I did. It was odd to see him at the dining room table in such a different context. Content and quiet. By now I had a sleeping disorder, nervous tics, a sense of worthlessness, depression. I kept a baseball bat under my bed. And I once tried to electrify my bedroom doorknob using a Radio Shack science kit I'd gotten for Christmas. My world was small, lonely, and unsafe. Having friends over was not encouraged. Too many family secrets to hide from sight. I had one childhood sleepover when I was eight. I was usually encouraged to spend the night at other people's homes, which was fine by me, but you had to return the favor or the invitations would eventually dry up, which they did. My father now spent no time alone with me unless circumstances mandated it, which was both a relief and a loss. I never had a healthy father-son relationship. I'd see how other fathers and sons interacted in the world around me or on TV, and I would yearn for a connection that I would never be able to have with this man. My parents ran into a scheduling conflict one Saturday, and he had no choice but to watch me. It was a dark gray day. The clouds were a solid barrier, horizon to horizon. My mother had to take my brother and sister somewhere. My grandmother was in a nursing home by now, and I was just young enough not to be left home alone and my father had to get his flight time in for his licensing. Get your jacket. We're going to the airfield. As we got out of the car, he said, If you have to go to the bathroom, do it now, but stay away from that faggot Jeff. The irony. 
He was expressing concern that some gay man may what? Molest me? He'd already taken care of that himself. Jeff was actually kind to me. Bladders emptied and at the plane, he started his pre-check, looking for nests in the engine, checking the fuel, moving the wheel blocks. Then we got in the plane. I'd never been in a plane before. He began his pre-flight checklist, and we were cleared by the tower for takeoff. As we bounced and jostled our way across the grounds to the runway, it began to rain. My excitement and nervousness were at war with one another, but the significance of my first airplane ride drowned out my ever-present fear of being in my father's company. We were now on the runway, moving faster and faster down the strip until suddenly we lifted off the ground. It was one of the most amazing things I had ever experienced. In mere moments, I was higher than I had ever been in my life. I could see how the land formed an almost patchwork design between farms and neighborhoods and businesses. The cars looked like toy models. We kept climbing toward the ceiling of gray clouds. I had seen air travel in movies and on TV, but that was different. In movies, the skies were always clear and blue, with maybe a cloud or two. I suppose it made for easier filming. So as we got closer and closer to the clouds, I didn't know what was about to happen. Would we turn back? Suddenly, we entered the dark clouds. The plane began to shake, but we kept climbing. Rain pelted the windows, and at one point, the plane bucked and my stomach flipped. I jumped in my seat then made myself as small as possible and recoiled from the exterior of the plane. Stop moving! You're shaking the plane, he barked. We kept climbing, and gradually the clouds became lighter in color and less dense. We emerged above them. I could not understand what I was looking at. Where was I? What happened to the gray clouds? I squinted from the bright light of the sun and marveled that suddenly there were blue skies everywhere, blue skies, and white clouds higher up. I looked around, smiling. What are you smiling at? He grumbled, not really wanting to hear an answer. So I set my face to neutral and just took in the view. This man, this man who had eroded my sense of value, who stole from me my innocence, who created for me a world of distrust and shame (laughs) and sorrow and fear pain. This man just showed me the most important and uplifting truth that had ever been revealed to me. That above gray clouds, blue skies, I was skyborne and my perspective of what was versus what could be was changed forever.